It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Yes, Mary Walter, that's me sitting in for Brian Kilmeade today. How are you? I have to tell you, yesterday I uh, <laughs> I, I worked a, a did a different show yesterday, got off the air. And I go and I sit down in my bedroom with a cup of coffee. And I said, oh, I'm going to relax a little bit before I start to get ready for Brian's show. And I turn on the TV. And what is in front of me? The Merrick Garland hearings. Now, normally, I would not consume the Merrick Garland hearings in a whole lot of detail and a whole lot of depth because they've been going on for a couple of days now. And I, I just, I don't know. I don't I, I just, it just didn't, was not something I would have put on the TV. But... When I turned it on, Spartacus was there talking. He looked all angry. And I was like, oh, this is going to be great. I'm telling you, I, I'm so glad I sat and I watched those hearings. I'm so glad I did it. Because, and, and I tweeted, I said, you know, they should, the Academy Awards should be extend to members of Congress because Cory Booker would get most dramatic performance over and over and over again. Ted Cruz nailed it. I saw some, someone posted, hey, has anybody called the Capitol Police because Ted Cruz just killed Merrick Garland in that hearing? <laughs> and there were some senators. What I did was I paused it so that I could fast forward through it. Because there were some, like, I love to watch Maisie Hirono because you never know what's going to come out of crazy Maisie's mouth, right? Like, you never know what's coming out of there. So that's great. Um, they were like Richard Blumenthal. I just fast forwarded through him. I really wanted to see Ted Cruz. Um, I saw a little bit. I think I missed most of Jim Jordan. I saw some, of, I watched Jim Jordan uh, on replay. So that's, my husband says to me, because what do you do all day? This is where my time goes. I don't get sucked into Oprah or Dr. Phil or something like that. No, I get sucked in to the Merrick Garland hearings, um, <laughs> which I thought, like I said, was, I thought this was just hilarious. Um, and, and it's frustrating in some ways. And I will tell you, I don't like when senators or congressmen, whether it's the House or the Senate, from either side, don't let the person speak. You're asking them a question. Just let them talk. Most of them just want to just you know, get up on their soapbox and talk. That's all they want to do. It's all show for the masses. It's, it's bread and circuses for their supporters. That's what it is. And Ted Cruz and uh, Tom Cotton were kind of bothering me a little bit. I watched Ted Cotton, Tom Cotton too, because they wouldn't let him answer. Just let him answer the question. And part of the problem I know is that they just go on and on and on so that you can't ask a lot of questions and they suck up your time answering. They know to do that. They're smart. They get it. Uh, but I, I, at some point I was just like, oh, just let him answer the question. Shut up and let him answer. So if you missed it, oh, you missed the fun because half of it was watching Cory Booker must have an acting coach because his facial expressions were so tortured and he just looked so indignant and upset and tortured at what Republicans were doing to poor Merrick Garland. So, all right, a lot of the questioning 
centered around the infamous memo that that came out that we all heard about that uh, weaponized, a lot of people were saying weaponized, uh, a portion of the DOJ against parents, right? Against, against you know, a, a, you're going to be a domestic terrorist. We heard all about that, right? So um, I, I just want to play just a, a, a segment here. And I'm look, here's what I'm looking for. It's the DOJ's National Security v- Division. So it's the DOJ-NSD that has been charged with um, handling these uh, domestic terrorists who are attacking our school boards. And, you know, th- this, this branch has been used in the past. They were involved in the FISA applications, you know, those infamous FISA applications, Carter Page, et cetera, and those connected with the Trump administration. It was, um, it, it was used also in, um, throughout the era of Barack Obama, a lot was, was used. So it's not just the DOJ, it's the National Security Division. And they can use things like some of the special laws that are used against terrorists that were, were never meant really to be used against American citizens. They're applying them to American citizens. So let's kick it off here with the Attorney General Merrick Garland yesterday on Capitol Hill defending that memo because, remember, the allegation is that the National School Board Association wrote a letter to the Biden administration saying, hey, we're being threatened and teachers are being threatened by these horrible parents. We need you to do something about that. And like four days later, this letter, this memo comes out from the DOJ. Here Senator, we go. I think all of us have seen these reports of violence and threats of violence. That is what the Justice Department is concerned about. It's not only in the context of violence and threats of violence against school board members, school personnel, teachers, staff. It's in a a rising tide of threats of violence. And what a lot of the Republican senators were going for here, and that was obviously Merrick Garland defending it, um, they're talking about violence, violence. And, you know, Cory Booker was all, you know, twisted up in knots over violence and how violent the right is. They love to paint the right as violent. Yet they ignore, and so does the DOJ, ignores someone like Madonna. Remember after the inauguration when they had the Women's March? I want to go and burn down the White House. That got a free pass. Rosie O'Donnell gets a free pass. Kathy Griffin, now her career was was totally trash. You know, but holding up a decapitated head of Donald Trump, if the if someone had done that of anyone on the left they would be apoplectic. There would be special hearings and everything about the violence rising from the right. But the violence at school board meetings, it's its interesting because I've only seen school board members get up and walk out on parents. I've seen parents wrestle to the ground and arrested for trying to speak. Now, have there been online threats made? Probably. I'm not saying there haven't been. I'm not that not that naive. I'm sure there are people who have threatened school board members, but I don't think any of it is to the extent of, remember the video, the rap video, Donald Trump dressed like a clown shooting him. And the violence that was directed at Donald Trump, the violence, physical violence that's directed at uh, Rand Paul. Remember he and his wife coming back from the president's uh, Rose Garden speech. And, and, and there was one DC cop who put literally put his body between Rand Paul and his wife and the crowd, the mob. So I, I, that just kept going through my head as I was listening to all of this. This is, um, this is just a quick montage 
of the GOP senators calling out the attorney general yesterday as the questioning went on. Did you consider the chilling impact your memorandum would have on parents exercising their constitutional rights? Did the DOJ do any real work outside of the public reporting to say that there's a disturbing trend that required the kind of uh, what we consider to be overreach on, part, on behalf of the DOJ? You wrote the memo because of the letter. The letter is disavowed now. So you're going to keep your memo going anyway, right? Is that what you're telling me? It's wrong. It is unprecedented, to my knowledge, in the history of this country. And I call on you to resign. Yeah, several of the of, of the congressmen called on him to resign. You also you heard um, Chuck Grassley right there saying the memo that that letter has since been rescinded. The letter from the National School Board that they sent to Biden, which got the DOJ to put this out in four days, including two days of a weekend, uh, has since been rescinded, but the memo has not been rescinded. And I thought that was a great point that Chuck Grassley was making there. Um, you heard their very end. It's just a little bit longer here. I'm going to cut. I'm going to skip cut three here, Matt, because um, we just heard Tom Cotton telling Garland to resign. Let's let's go down to cut four. Here's Tom Cotton in his questioning, which again I thought was good. He asked Garland. Uh, about you, they were really probing about what went into this. Did you do any kind of research into the background here of what the school boards were alleging? And I thought that was a really interesting point that they were making and one that needed to be made because we need to know, was this letter given to the DOJ by someone in the white house? Cause it went to the white house given to them. And did they do, did they just read the letter and go, Oh my gosh, we have to act on this. Or was there any kind of due diligence because that's important. You should you should want them to do some kind of due diligence to make sure that the allegations actually are valid, right? Because you and the National School Board is a you know big donor to the Biden campaign, so of course they go to the front of the line. But as the DOJ, isn't it not your responsibility to do some kind of due diligence? Here's Tom Cotton with that line of questioning. Let's turn to your outrageous directive sicking the feds on parents at school boards across America. When you crafted that October 4th memo, did you consult with senior leadership at the FBI? My understanding was that the memo um, or the idea of the memo had been discussed with the FBI before. Did anyone at the FBI express any doubt or disagreement or hesitation with your decision to issue that memo? No one expressed that to me. No one? To me. No one expressed that to me, no. Because a lot of them have contacted us, and they said they did, Judge. I'm sorry? A lot of FBI officials have contacted my office and said that they opposed this decision. Well, I doubt any of them spoke to me about it because I didn't speak to, to uh, no one. All right. Made that All right. To me. And I found that interesting because what Tom Cotton was saying there to them is like saying to the, to the attorney general, is like, really? You know, kind of like, remember, you're, you're, you're testifying before Congress. Are you sure that's what you want to say? You sure they didn't contact you? Uh, I want to I want to move down to a cut seven here, Matt. You know, he's talking about violence and threat. Actually, cut six. Let's start with cut six and then we'll go to cut seven. Talking about what it's what they outline in the memo are uh, violence, threat, threats of violence, harassment and intimidation. Those three things are the theme of this memo. Harassment, intimidation and violence, because it sets the scene for his next question. It sets up his next question regarding harassment. Violence and threats of violence. Yeah. We've heard it a dozen times this morning. 
The very first line in your October 4th memorandum refers to harassment and intimidation. Why do you continue to dissemble in front of this committee that you are only talking about violence and threats of violence when your memo says harassment and intimidation? Senator, I said in, it, uh, in my testimony that it involved other kinds of criminal conduct, statutory definitions of those terms, and the constitutional definitions of those terms involve threats of violence. Okay, let's look at one of those statutes you cited, yeah. Section 223. That statute covers the use of not just telephones but telecommunications devices to annoy someone. Are you going to sick your U.S. attorneys and the FBI on a parent's group if they post on Facebook something that annoys a school board member, well, Judge? The answer to that is no. I thought it was interesting because here's where Tom Cotton goes with this regarding threats of violence. Christian cinema should be a name you remember. Even though parents at school boards aren't within federal jurisdiction, there's no doubt that federal officials are. You keep saying senators. Have you started an investigation into the harassment of Senator Kirsten Cinema in a bathroom? In a bathroom because she won't go along with the Democratic Party's big tax and spend agenda? That is a sitting United States senator being harassed in a bathroom. I don't know whether the senator has referred the matter to the Justice Department or not. Oh, so she has to refer it to the Justice Department. Interesting. And I thought that was a great way to go because the school boards, I guess, have they're all referring all of these these cases of harassment and intimidation and threats of violence to the DOJ. And they're just acting on it. Is that what we're hearing here? What happened to Kirsten Cinema in a bathroom was actually illegal in that state. And as she every time she comes out of, a, of you know the airport, she's constantly being harassed. So, you know, you do have the right to free speech. What they do to Christian cinema is is not a fun thing. I can't imagine, you know, being harassed like that constantly. But when you follow someone into the bathroom, they crossed the line there. And that should have been a criminal referral. But, you know, I, I don't know. This This is something I find fascinating when it comes to Washington, D.C., we have the most ignorant, unknowledgeable group of people in Washington, D.C. And then, then outside of Washington, D.C., can you imagine if someone you're, you're under being asked about something that happened at your job and you go, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. No, I don't know. And, and you just constantly sat there and said, I don't know. I can't imagine you would still have your job. This guy is in charge of justice for the United States. Justice to the United States. All right. More coming up on the hearings from Garland yesterday. And I, I wanted to do this so that you can get a feel of what happened yesterday uh, because Republicans definitely were hammering the attorney general. More coming up on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. 
Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com path. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Did you consider the chilling effect that this sort of threat of federal prosecution would have on parents' exercise of their constitutional rights to be involved in their children's education? Don't believe it's reasonable to read this memorandum as chilling anyone's right. Wow, that was Senator John Cornyn yesterday uh, asking the Attorney General Merrick Garland about that infamous memo that he issued that a lot of parents feel paints them as domestic terrorists. And what I thought was so interesting during this hearing yesterday is like Democrats are doubling down on it. Doubling down on the threats from these parents at these school board meetings. They're out of control. I thought... Holy Christmas, did you not see what happened to to Terry McAuliffe in Virginia when he said you're not in control of your your children's education? We are, you know, the the schools are, the politicians are. Why are you doubling down on this? Uh, I I want to also talk to you here. Let, let's also um go to Ted Cruz. This it's a quick cut, but this was one of the things that drove me crazy yesterday is Listen, Ted Cruz, love you. I know where you were going. Let the guy speak. Did you seek an ethics opinion? This memorandum has nothing to do with... General, are you refusing to answer if you sought an ethics opinion? I'm telling you that there's no possible... So you're saying no. Just answer it directly. You know how to answer a question directly. And it just went back and forth and on and on. And I start yelling at the television and... I can hear my husband in the back of my brain saying, you know he can't hear you, right? That's what my husband does to me. He can't hear you. I want to just quickly, we have uh, about a minute. Caesar in Panama City, Florida. You're on the Brian Kilmeade Show. One minute, Caesar. Hi. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. I greatly appreciate the points that you're eliminating about the Attorney General. What I'd like to bring it up to a broader point is that whenever Biden was notified about the harassment to our senators, it was a, "Eh, it happens. Now, wait a minute. This is our chief executive officer. How was it not, okay, stop. I want the Justice Department looking into this. Secret Service, go protect them now. Is that what executive leadership looks like? Uh, it happens. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. That is an, that is a great point. I'm so glad I took your call, Caesar. Thank you. You didn't make me regret it. Thank you. <laughs> a lot of times when you take a call, you're like, one minute, you regret it. Thank you. That's a great point. What about, what about Brett Kavanaugh? 
You know, there are so many examples where the right is harassing. You know, you've got Maxine Waters telling them, get in their faces. You had, you had members of the Trump administration being driven out of restaurants and movie theaters. That was okay. Free speech. That's all right to do that. You can have, you can say what you want, but there are consequences. And these are the consequences where we're going to harass you so that you can't live your life. We're going to be on your front lawn. Look what they did to Tucker on his front lawn while he wasn't home and his wife was there with the kids. Remember that? Oh, that's free speech. We're allowed to do it. Suck it up, buttercup. We've got more coming up. Now, coming up, we're going to switch gears a little bit. We've got Griff Jenkins with us live from the border or actually live from where the border would be if we actually had a border, which right now we don't. We're going to talk to Griff next on The Brian Kilmeade Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. I'm Mary Walter in for Brian Kilmeade. Let's take a trip, shall we? We're joined by Griff Jenkins, Fox News correspondent, a man who is everywhere. Right now he is in Tapachula, Mexico. Griff, how are you? Hey, Mary, good morning. I am. I'm staying at Tapachula. I'm actually at the Tapachula Airport because we got word late last night that Mexico is actually deporting some migrants. And we're here. I'm counting one, two, three, four. Five long white buses being guarded by the National Guard and the Mexican Federal Police. Uh, And we saw migrants getting on uh, the buses being driven out to the tarmac, although, unfortunately, the officials here did not want to comment. I don't think the bosses around it wouldn't tell us exactly uh, what they're doing, but they say they are sending some migrants back to their home countries. Very interesting, something we uh, have not seen a lot of. We don't know whether they were sent back from the U.S. or whether they were just here. But one thing is for sure, the uh, caravan that we've been in for the last five days is simply growing. It's as strong as 4,000, according to the organizers. And uh, perhaps the most remarkable part of this caravan is it is so many children, more than 1,250 under the age of seven. There's 100 babies under the age of one. There's another near 500 that are between the ages of seven and 18. It's very different. I think I talked to you, Mary, excuse me, two years ago when I followed that caravan in 2019. It went all the way from uh, San Pedro Sula, Honduras, where I began with it, to Piedras Negras, which is across from Eagle Pass, Texas, which is why now, today, you've got Governor Abbott hardening the border there, putting more resources down there. It's so many questions, Griff. My my first question, every time I see you reporting from the border – If I were you, I just get so disheartened even listening to it. Like, seriously, we don't even have a border. We're we're welcoming people. We're allowing people to organize these protests, break our laws. And yet you report on it time after time after time. What does that do to your psyche, if anything? Because it totally disheartens me. Well, you know, uh, it's a great question. Thank you for asking. And, uh, you know, it, it, it certainly takes a little bit of a toll. It's just sad. Mary, because honestly, the migrants believe that they're going to be welcomed by President Biden. And yesterday, one of the migrants, and you know, when we do these things, we we spend time in the group to try and sort of find the ones 
that can speak English. Many of them can um, because obviously that translates to, to our viewers and listeners to understand what they're saying. But yesterday one was telling me that, you know, I do think President Biden is, is welcoming me, and I tried to explain Attorney General Garrett, uh, Merrick Garland said don't come, along with Mexico's foreign minister uh, at a news conference saying that the, the caravan would not succeed. They said, no, 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 President Biden uh, is going to help me. He said so in his campaign. They even know that when Biden was campaigning uh, for president that, uh, that, that they would be welcomed, but yet at the same time, it's a mixed message because obviously uh, for the single males under Title 42, they're being sent back. And then, of course, the tragedy is that covered the Haitians. I was here in Tapachula three weeks ago covering the tens of thousands of Haitians here. They, uh, by and large, many of them have been living in Brazil or Chile that fled after the earthquake in 2010. And then their end result for many of them that were under that bridge where they were deported back to Haiti which obviously uh, is a much worse situation than being sent back to where they were living in Brazil or Chile. Well, it explains the the just incredible number of children and young children. So, you know, the single moms bring them across because let's face it, if, if the men do get deported back, right, then when the mother's here with the baby, if especially if she has a baby here, they can just then apply to bring all the, the, the male relatives over. So yeah, they have to stay separated for a couple of years, but they know that in the end, they ultimately will have the family reunification in the United States and not the family reunification in their home country. So there's so the incentive. You put, fing- you put your finger on it. You put your finger on it, Mary. That You, you absolutely nailed it. That A lot of people don't understand if you step back from this, all of the tragic pictures I show of a suffering mother carrying a baby in the, the, the conditions just awful that they're living in, under that bridge or in the caravan where I've been. But at the end of the day, they were successful. These families got in and they were able to stay. And so it sends the message that you're going to – you can't succeed. It will succeed. Most of us have succeeded in the end. I have so many contacts that I have made over the years and in the last year covering this uh, border crisis of folks that ended up where they wanted to be. I remember when I was covering back when I first was really putting this on the map, when nobody was covering it, I was down there uh, in Del Rio. I waded into the water, confronted a smuggler, but I was also showing wading through uh, the the river uh, like a 70-something-year-old grandmother that was struggling. It was so uh, heart-wrenching to see, and I helped her. I gave her Gatorade, and, and I gave her my cell phone, Mary, to call her daughter who lives in Orlando, Florida, and her daughter was uh, profusely happy. Well, about Two weeks after that, they wrote back, and it was a great picture of them at dinner, and they're all happy, and, you know, they wanted to let me know she was okay. And I was I was genuinely, from a human, you know, uh, standpoint, glad that she was okay after seeing her suffer so bad. She broke down in tears when she was talking to me. But at the end of the day, she succeeded. And that message that those that went before the migrants succeeded sends a message back to those that want to come, yeah. hey, now is the time. Come and do it, and you will ultimately achieve your goal. One of the things that I I read a story, I see so many of them, but Border Patrol agents commenting on the amount of money these people are carrying with them. 
that you know they're they're bringing their life savings with them and we know a lot of them pay smugglers so but if you don't pay a smuggler like this last this caravan that's coming up now this was organized using qr codes I, and and from what i understand and correct me if i'm wrong part of this was organized on facebook is that not illegal isn't facebook enabling the the breaking of american law you know i have not uh been able to get uh to 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 ask facebook specifically about the you know legalities and, and where they stand on it but i did break the story of the qr code because the leader of this caravan Irineo Mujica organized the 2019 caravans and he wanted me to know that he was going to be doing this now i was with him three weeks ago here in tapachula and he was telling me he was going to do it and the qr code is a way uh to be a more organized but also uh Irineo wanted to have the uh, like a registrar of these migrants because he's petitioning the mexican government to give them work permits in hopes that maybe some will find jobs in in Mexico and not even need to cross in the U.S. Reality is that just doesn't hold water because there right. are no good jobs in Mexico, and they don't want those uh, wages. They want to go to the U.S. But but at the end of the day, uh, it is highly, highly organized this time. And, you know, Facebook is where, you know, the migrants on social media get it. Real quick, just on the money thing, they're paying at every juncture. When I was two weeks ago down in the Darien Gap, the most dense jungle on planet Earth in yes. Panama, there almost all of them get robbed in the jungle. And so we were we were wondering, but but as soon as they come out of the jungle, they all pay forty dollars per person to take a bus twelve hours straight to Costa Rica. How do they pay? Literally there are agents wearing signs that say Western Union. And those reps, the migrant goes up to the rep and the rep has a account they call their relatives in the U.S. The relative puts $1,000 in the account. Then the guy turns out, pulls out his you know, backpack and hands them the cash right there. They're able to get funding from their U.S. Uh, parents or uh, family as they go along at every step. So as soon as they lose money or get robbed or spend all their money, they can get more from those in the U.S. that are helping them go. And it's just an unbelievable uh, system from South America all the way to our U.S. border where they're paying all the way, whether it's a bus ride or a cartel smuggler. But, you know, this is a for-profit pipeline that uh, is showing no signs of slowing down. You know, one last question here and a thought that I've had all along, especially when my my friends who who have, you know, drunk the Kool-Aid and they're, you know, definitely lefties and these people are suffering. We need to bring them here. You you talk about the Darien Gap and you talk, you know, we all know that you know, they give the, the young girls birth control pills so that they don't get pregnant because they're going to be raped along the way. And, and tra- traveling with all these children. My mother didn't want to take us to a grocery store when I was a kid. So I, I can't imagine traveling, you know, thousands and thousands of miles in flip-flops, you know, dragging some screaming kid with you because there's no way my parents just would have stayed wherever they were um, and then sent us off when we were 18 to do it ourselves. Um, you know, I, I think about these, wouldn't it be more humanitarian? And I asked my friends this, the, the real left ones, wouldn't it be more humanitarian then to take the money out of the smugglers' pockets, take the money out of the drug uh smugglers pockets and just send pick a country every month we send a plane 
and we pick up the most needy in that country and we vet, we can vet them beforehand and then we bring them back to the United States and we can do this. We could just go around the world to every country that has people that don't want to be there, that want to come to the United States to live. And at least we then humanely transport them and it would be more, it's a more efficient and it's cheaper for us ultimately. You know, you're you're got a good idea, and maybe that works. But you know, it is interesting if you look back, back when Joe Biden was vice president, and we had the 2010-2012 crisis of unaccompanied children. Joe Biden went and made a speech, spoke to the press in Guatemala when he was then tapped borders are by Obama, and he talked about the horrific crisis of the conditions you're putting these women and children specifically in, in the hands of the cartels. Yet now, ironically, because of this complete open border, the fact that this administration has utterly walked away from any border enforcement whatsoever, he has made the cartels stronger than they have ever been. Business has never been better, because not only are they making money on the migrants, but with such a huge surge, not a single Border Patrol agent is able to be, quote, on the line. They're doing all the transporting. They're taking care of these families and children and processing them. They can't stop the holes on the border. And that is why, while they're making money on the bodies going across, they're moving more dope, more fentanyl, more heroin, more cocaine, more guns than ever. And so, you know, for for the guy that was compassionate and sensitive to exactly the human toll you're talking about back in 2012 is now uh, making the cartels uh, richer than they've ever been. Unbelievable. Well, we, we don't have any more time, Griff, but thank you so much. And just one thing that you said there that I would just like to note, I didn't realize it didn't click that he had been the border czar for Obama. So I find it interesting that now that he's president, he clearly learned nothing from being border czar because he had to send Kamala Harris to find out the root causes and how to solve the immigration problem. You would have think he would have had that in his back pocket since he was in charge of it at one point in time. So you, I, you I sure find were. that ironic. <laughs> Griff, thank you so much. Stay safe, please. And thank you for keeping us so informed of what's happening down there because there are so many outlets that are not even talking about our non-existent border because you can't even say what's happening at the border because we clearly don't have one now. Thank you so much, Griff. You bet. Great job, Mary. Thanks for uh, having me on. Of course. I want to talk to you. Let's get your calls on this. 866-408-7669. I'm Mary Walter, and you are listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Expanding your knowledge base, it's Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. We were talking earlier this hour about the Garland hearings yesterday, and a lot of it was about critical race theory being taught in schools and about the memo that was sent from the DOJ to uh, the regarding parents in these school board meetings because, you know, they're they're harassing and they're domestic terrorists and, you know, threatening and everything else and and how um, to their credit. 
the GOP really went after Merrick Garland with that. And and I'm glad that they did. They went after him about other things as well. And we were just talking to Griff Jenkins from where our border would be if we had one. He's actually in Tapachula, Mexico. But he did say that the Mexicans are, depl- are um, deporting some of these migrants that are in this latest caravan. It's up to about 4,000 because, you know, they pick people up as they go along the way and how organized it all is. And there, it's just so easy to shut this down. I'm not a politician. I'm not an expert on budgets or anything along these lines. But you can very easily see how easy it is to shut this down. I don't think you, you know, we could probably, a group of us could probably get together and figure it out over lunch. Not that hard. But the administration clearly doesn't want to do it. Very quickly, let's go to Eric on listening on WDBO in Orlando. Eric, you are on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi. Hey, Mary. I love when you fill in. Um, Thank you. I, I work for a large company, and I work with a couple guys. Two guys, they use the word escaped. Two guys escaped Cuba. One guy escaped Venezuela. And they're all saying that this whole open border thing is going to backfire because these people know that the Democrats, these people coming over, they just want to get to America. They know the Democrats want socialism and lawlessness, and they're coming from places with socialism and lawlessness, and they are going to vote Republican. They appreciate that Joe Biden's giving them the opportunity to get in, but they know better. And you're seeing it all over the Internet, people that were in Venezuela, people that were in Cuba. They're telling us the dangers of what we got going on, but this is going to backfire on them. And there's going to be more Republican Latino votes than they've ever seen in history if they let these people vote. What's interesting, you know, you the latest polls, there was a poll, I was talking about it yesterday. Uh, the latest poll that's come out regarding Trump versus Biden matchup. Since the election, Trump's support among African-Americans and Hispanics has has dumped, has dumped, has jumped double digits and his support among married women has also jumped. Those are the top three groups demographics with which his support has jumped. The women, I think the married women, I think it's because of schools. And because of inflation, because they're most likely to to do the, the shopping so they know the prices. And African-Americans, where do you think these illegals are being dumped in the inner cities? Who do you think lives there, right? African-Americans and Hispanics. And a lot of these Hispanics have come here legally previously. A lot from Cuba. Look at Miami. Look at Florida. Those Hispanics in Florida, they support Donald Trump. They supported him because they believe in legal immigration and they know what's happening. They understand it. So it's a great point that you make that this is eventually going to backfire on them. Eric, the unfortunate problem is that, um, eventually down the road, all these people will be allowed to become citizens, just mass amnesty, and they're going to get to vote. And I do think a lot of them who are poor, who are on the receiving end, who are illiterate in their own country, in their own language, so are never going to speak English. And you're not going to get anywhere in this country if you don't speak English. If you don't learn how to read, write, and speak English, you're only going to go so far in this country. And that's just a fact for everyone, not just Hispanics, everyone. And so those people are most likely going to vote Democrat because they're the ones uh, who are going to be receptive to the don't worry, we're going to give you everything you could possibly need, you know, cradle to grave if you ever make it to the cradle and we don't abort you first, health care, education, we're going to meet all your needs, food, everything. 
They're the ones who are going to be receptive to that message. You get a couple of generations away and the kids go to school and they be, you know, become more educated. It's going to be different. Also, in the meantime, though, remember, these kids who are coming, a lot of them illiterate in their own language, etc. don't speak English. They're all going to be able to be educated in our schools. They're going to get the free health care at the doctors and the hospitals and everything else. It's going to be a huge tax burden and a huge strain on the economy here. I'm Mary Walter. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. I'm Mary Walter sitting in for Brian Kilmeade today. I am so excited about this guest. This is a young man. His name is Daniel E. Friends, and he wrote an interesting piece on Substack, Barry Weiss's uh, Substack, and it's gone viral. It's been in the New York Post and other publications as well, and it is so insanely well-written for a 17-year-old, but I want to just read the first sentence to you before we speak to him. It's He starts off by saying, I am a first-generation 17-year-old black American who grew up in Bedford-Stuyvesant, the Brooklyn neighborhood made famous by Jay-Z. Given that brief biography, perhaps you'd assume that I'm a Black Lives Matter slogan-chanting, capitalism-chastising teen activist, or that I'm an at-risk youth destined for dropping out or incarceration. You'd be wrong on both counts. Daniel Lee, friends, welcome to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi. Thank you for having me. This piece is amazing. It is so insanely well written. You put journalists, a quote unquote journalists, to shame at so many of our premier uh, media outlets. Uh, your command of the English language and the way you you tell your story is absolutely masterful. What prompted you to write this piece in the first place? We'll go into it into exactly what you wrote, but what prompted you to write this? I wrote this piece because, A, I wanted to sort of give parents uh, some hope. Uh, we What we've seen with the, the school boards and how um, we're combating race, uh, racial and sexualism in schools and whatnot um, across the nation, uh, I thought that, hey, if I can give a sort of my story and how I've been able to escape woke politics – then it would probably give a guideline or maybe some hope um, for parents and people across the country to, uh, for them to realize, hey, like we, there is a way out of this. And part of that uh, way is making sure we raise children properly, uh, give them good values, and make sure uh, they're given a proper education. You go into your story because the title of this is I'm 17 and I'm immunized from woke politics. You talk about your your story of being immunized. Now, you, I think a large portion of your story, and I say this all the time on the air, which is why this really spoke to me. Your parents are immigrants to this country from Haiti. And I, I've, I've contended for a long time now that I, I think the further each generation gets away from their immigration story to this country, 
the more left they become, the less likely they are to know why their parents or grandparents or great grandparents came to this country. The reasons why to know that the story and how lucky they are to be Americans, how blessed we are to be Americans, what we have in this country. And I think that for me, at least when I read your story, that was the key to why you have not succumbed to all of this junk that you're being fed in school and in social media and society around you. How important is your parents' immigration story to your story? It it is very important because uh, their immigration story is a story of hard work. It is a story of uh, sticking with their values no matter what. Uh, even when hard times come by. Um, And, you know, uh, what we see the mantra among those who are woke among the progressives uh, is that there's no such thing as pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and systems against you and whatnot. But it's very hard to fall for that narrative when you you have seen the, the results of hard work from your parents. Absolutely. And and they instilled that in you, as you talk about in the piece, as you just said now. Were, you said you didn't realize you were being raised differently than your friends, and it did eventually hit you. Your parents were much stricter than your friends' parents. But, you know, you, you had a job. You, you, you washed dishes at Panera Bread. You, how many of your friends, though, your, your peers, had jobs and had a similar experience like that growing up, the idea of, okay, you have to work. This is part of the deal is you have to earn your way. I think a few of my friends uh, work jobs as well. I do go to Brooklyn Tech, and Brooklyn Tech has a few uh, students, uh, uh, quite a few students who are like me who uh, have um, parents or grandparents who are immigrants. And so uh, they sort of, they see, they saw what their uh, parents and grandparents went through, and they are they want to embody that. Even though they're they're not conservatives, they they still want to embody that hard work and whatnot. Um, but for our generation, for Gen Z in totality, very a very small amount of Gen Zers are actually working jobs, and you can uh, you know make a contention. Oh, that's because well, people who are graduated from college they get they take these entry level jobs because they can't find the jobs in their careers, and that like ostracizes uh, Gen Z from the market or younger Gen Zers from the market. Whatever what argument you make, it, it, the fact still remains that our generation isn't working, and uh, that contributes to their uh, attitudes of entitlement. Yeah, I, and I, it's so funny because I see this, and to hear a 17-year-old say it for me, it makes me feel like, okay, I'm not as ancient as I think I am. <laughs> but but that was something we all had growing up, and if we didn't have a job outside the home, we started with chores from the time we were little kids, and you earned certain things as you went along, and if you didn't do your chores, you didn't get whatever the reward was. And I think that is such an important lesson to instill in children from the time they're very little to, to you know, as they grow up and then you go, you know, you get into be 16, 17 years old, you get a job outside of the home for money. It instills a certain sense of values, but also I think expectations in you. So knowing that you've had this experience versus a lot of your peers, do you think that you are more mature than your peers? How has it benefited you having this experience that they haven't had? Yeah, so uh, first, I'll just comment on the, the point that you just made. I, I think also working uh, helps you understand that the world around you isn't made by quote-unquote robots, that there's there are people behind the sandwich that you get at 
whatever store you eat from that. There's people running, uh, flying the plane that you that you hop on when you're going to vacation. And it's all these people voluntarily working together to give you the luxury that you have. And when you work, you realize, okay, I'm a part of that uh, teamwork as well. Um, I wouldn't say that I am quote unquote more mature than my my fellow classmates. I just I would say that the experiences that I've had has uniquely benefited me benefited me in certain ways. I when I talk to my peers, it's not as if they're immature or um, they're immature, but I I do believe that my experience has uh, my experiences helped me develop a a worldview that is um, I think has more gratitude uh, for our institutions and for um, America. Now, you are currently a senior at Brooklyn Tech, which has an 8% acceptance rate. So you had to study hard in order to get into this. It's part of the specialized high school program in New York for high-performing students. Uh, Is this one of the schools, uh, one of these programs that the mayor is trying to get rid of? Well, yeah, so Mayor de Blasio tried to end the specialized high school admissions test. Um, however, uh, Asian parents ha- uh, Asian parents led the charge um, in stopping that attempt, and so uh, the SHSAT still remains uh, in New York City, and uh, the SHSAT is uh, pretty much a-, a test that you take, and if you score above the cutoff score, you get accepted to certain schools. I got accepted into Brooklyn Tech. Uh, but the Blasio did end the gifted and talented programs October 8th or October 9th, I believe. Gotcha. So now in, in this school, kids have to work hard to get into this school. So these are kids who really want this, really want this education and put the time into it. Is the atmosphere there different than what you would see in, an, in a pub, regular public high school as far as the kids being woke and the teachers being woke and, 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 and expressing all of this stuff? Do you feel that you can express yourself the way you normally would or maybe you're a little bit luckier that you can express your values that you would not be able to do in a regular high school? Yes, that's an interesting question. So first first things first, Brooklyn Tech is a huge school. We have 6,000, at least 6,000 kids in that school. And usually when uh, a school goes completely completely woke, we see a full backing by the administration of that school. Uh, we can think Beerly, we can think these uh, 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 well-to-do private schools in Manhattan. Usually the administration is sending letters telling parents this is how we're going to do things now. But when you have 6,000 kids, it's really hard for the administration to uh, know what every single teacher is teaching. Although, obviously, at the end of the year, everybody uh, knows the same things. Every student knows the same things because they have to take an AP test or regents, whatever they're taking. But the administration doesn't have as much as a stronghold on the the, the student body and the, the, the teacher population. However, your experience at Tech uh, with indoctrination and wokeness again, it's not contingent on the teacher because the administration is not taking that charge. And so some of my students, I mean, not my students, my classmates, my peers, had pretty bad uh, classes um, where they did not learn anything and they will come to me and complain about it. Other times, um, it's not so bad, maybe just a platitude here and there. And so it really depends on on what teacher you, you have. Right. So, so since you wrote this, how has your life changed at school? I would say, I would say that it, it first. First, I, I should start with a good thing. There's there are a lot of students who 
believe that um, we we should be talking about uh, issues without having to worry about us uh, facing uh, the consequences, critical consequences of really trying to uh, rigorously um, uh, intellectually explore the world in a way that we would uh, w- that we would like to. And a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of my classmates, they will come up to me and say, "Thank you." Uh, thank you for saying for speaking out and saying what you said. Uh, other classmates who are who are liberals, they would say, "Hey, like you know, obviously I don't agree with everything that that you said, but you know, as long as you come up to me and we like talk, we talk in a respectful manner, um, then that's what that's that's what I love. That's what my my classmates love. Obviously, there are um, there are students who don't like uh, what I'm doing." Um, who don't obviously don't agree, and then there are students who don't like what I'm doing. But I would say that the way I've approached my beliefs uh, has been respectful, and the classmates, my classmates, probably if anything bad happens, most of the classmates, most of my classmates would say, "Hey, that's unfair." Daniel at least would pose his uh, arguments in a respectful manner, and that's really what's important. Approaching different topics respectfully. Absolutely. You've opened up the the conversation. I I wish we had more time to go into everything into this article, which is why I urge everyone to read this. I'm 17 and I'm immunized from woke politics by Daniel Lee friends. And and, and if you put in that title, you'll get it. You'll, you'll get the article will come up for you because there's so much more in here about, you know, the religion, which is another thing that I think is, is lacking. The more the, as this country goes on, we become more and more agnostic. And I, I think that that religious background has really served you and it's still a lot of values in you that you talk about those. You talk about a history teacher who allowed you and other students to come into his office and have this free exchange of ideas that you normally wouldn't talk about in the classroom. I think all of this so important. It's such an interesting formula for how you got where you are. And I think it's a great read for parents, especially to see, wow, how to immunize your kids. If you don't want them um, coming out of high school, this, you know, liberal activist, I have one last question for you. You're a senior. You have done so much in in 17 short years. What's your dream school for college, if you're going to college? Well, I I wouldn't say I have a a dream school, but I would say my quote-unquote dream school is a school that wouldn't actively punish me for speaking out and uh, advocating for things that I believe in. Do you have do you have a particular school in mind if you want to share it? If you don't, that's fine. But I was just curious what you're what you're setting yep. your sights on. Well, well, right now we're dealing with college applications, and uh, we we will we will see. Uh, okay, what, and what, what field on. do you want to go into? Um, I, I'm I'm into politics and philosophy, so I'll probably double major in that. All right. Well, I expect to see the name Daniel Lee Friends in about four years from now, five years from now, uh, making big waves. You also have a YouTube channel. How can people find that? Yeah. So you just need, need to type Daniel E. Friends uh, in the uh, YouTube search bar. That is Daniel, the normal way you spell it, and E. Friends, I-D-F-R-E-S-N-E. And you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, same handle, Daniel E. Friends. That's I-D-F-R-E-S-N-E. And again, I, I keep saying this, but this, this was such an amazing uh, article that you wrote. And I just want to tell you this one line that our producer shared with me this morning. She said, from, from your story, I have plenty of Manhattanite friends whose families are wealthier than mine. But as my mother says, my greatest inheritance is her belief in the word. 
amazing. Daniel E. Friends, thank you so much. Best of luck with wherever you go in the future. And as I said, I expect to hear your name a lot. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. It was a pleasure. All right. Do you want to comment? 866 866- Four zero eight seven six six nine. It's amazing story. How are you keeping your kids immunized from the woke politics that they are exposed to from social media, in school, their friends, etc.? I'll get your calls coming up on the Brian Kilmeade Show. It's Brian Kilmeade from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Radio that makes you think. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. You just heard an interview with a young man, 17 years old, named Daniel E. Friends, uh, and he wrote a piece that has gone viral. It was on Substack. Uh, the New York Post picked it up. A whole bunch of mainstream publications picked it up. And it's titled, I'm 17 and I'm immunized from woke politics. And he talks about growing up in bedford Stuy as a black American. His parents are immigrants from Haiti. And what he outlines in this piece to me seems to be so simple as far as keeping your kids immunized. And this is where I go back to the pandemic being a gift. And if you want to jump in on what he had to say and how you're keeping your kids immunized, are you fighting the battle? Are you fighting the good fight? How are you doing it? 866-408-7669. You know, I remember my grandparents' immigration story. My grandparents sat us down and, and, and told us the story about why they came to the United States and what was going on in Germany at the time and, and on and on. And so that I had an appreciation for why we my family is here. We also visited my family in Germany, my father's family in Germany every other year. And then on the off years when we didn't go there, they would come to the United States. And so there was a lot of appreciation that was taught to us of this country and what this country gives us. I think a lot of that's missing as we get further away from your, our family, your family, uh, their immigration story. The other thing that I thought was interesting is his parents are deeply religious. They both uh, run a church now in the United States, in, in New York. And I thought that that's another thing that we're starting to lose in this country. We're, we're losing the tie to organized religion, a tie to a place and, and the idea that there's a greater being that is greater than you. And, and the idea of having it, it, and I see it with my friends who aren't religious, I hate to say this, they're good people. They're go- I'm not saying they're, they're not good people, but there is more of a selfishness. And I, gosh, I, I probably sound terrible, but there's more of a selfishness to them. There's less of a sense of this overall arching, you're just a small, tiny piece in, in the whole universe. And there are so many people who have needs far greater than yours and that you're blessed, that idea. You know, so so I think that maybe those are some of the things that we need to focus on just a tiny little bit. More coming up on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. I'm Mary Walter in for Brian Kilmeade. As soon as the president speaks to us about this framework, 
that they're getting for the reconciliation bill and the infrastructure bill. Uh, We will let you know what he has to say because apparently they can't get the quote unquote progressives, whatever those are, uh, in line. (laughs) That's <laughs> not happening. So um, I don't, I'm not quite sure what they're they're coming up with. You hear uh, Nancy Pelosi, of course, saying, "Oh yeah, we're really close. We're, we're really close." And then you have like uh, Jamila Pride. I can never say her name. The head of the Progressive Caucus. I can never say her name, and I apologize. Priyabal. She uh, she's saying, "Well, you know, maybe like five to ten days, seven to ten days, a week or so. We we could probably come to an agreement." They're holding out. And they're pushing the the rest of the Democrat caucus's hands. So we'll see, we'll keep you updated if the president does actually read from the teleprompter in the next uh, <laughs> soon in the next couple of minutes or so. All right, some good news out of Florida. Florida has reached has reached their lowest coronavirus case rate rate in the nation without mandates or lockdowns. DeSantis said in a press release, COVID-19 cases in Florida have decreased 90% since August. In addition to cases, hospitalizations have plummeted in our state. This has been accomplished by making monoclonal antibody treatments and vaccines widely available throughout our state while protecting Floridians from government overreach. You're not hearing anything about this because it doesn't fit the agenda, right? It doesn't fit the messaging from the left and the propagandists on your television and newspapers, et cetera. When Florida was leading the nation or had a rise in, in COVID cases, oh, they were touting it everywhere. He's killing people. Republicans want people to die. Now, they're very quiet, very quiet. According to Yahoo News, Florida's case rates are now roughly half of California's current COVID rate and less than a quarter of Vermont's, both which have vaccination rates over 70%. New York numbers are even worse. In New York, New York is reporting 21 cases per capita. That is a decrease over the past 14 days, a huge decrease, but still almost double of of what uh, Florida has. Actually, more than double what Florida has. Florida has eight cases per 100,000, and uh, New York has 21. California, 14 cases. D.C., which has a mask mandate in place, 12 cases, which is all, all higher than Florida. Illinois, 17 cases per capita. So these blue states with these lockdowns and mandates and everything else, they're not doing as well as Florida, uh, which is which is open and is allowing people to live their lives. Now, you're seeing it a lot in New York. Um, you, you saw so there was a Black Lives Matter march against vaccine mandates. Uh, I think it was about three weeks ago. It was recently a march this past weekend. And then you have Kyrie Irving and they stormed the Barclays Center last weekend because Kyrie Irving can't play because he does. He's not vaccinated. And he's you know, he said he has my position, which is give me the information. Let me ask my doctor questions, which you're pretty much not allowed to do because doctors are muzzled and can only tell you about what's approved by the FDA. So if you have a question about another treatment, they're not allowed to discuss it with you. And he said, let me make my decision. That's all. I'm just saying, let me become informed and then make my decision. But don't punish me for making my decision. I want to jump to cut 19, Matt. Floyd Mayweather is now come out because you're seeing basketball players come out and saying, hey, freedom of choice here. You're seeing um, Black Lives Matter 
coming out wanting freedom of choice. They were marching. You know, when you see Black Lives Matter people and MAGA people marching for the same thing, Democrats have a problem. Here's what Floyd Mayweather had to say in a viral video. Kyrie, what's up? I know you're going through a lot. America is the land of the free. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and supposedly freedom to choose. Never be controlled by money. I respect you for having some integrity and being your own man. A free mind makes his own choices. An enslaved mind follows the crowd. Stand for something or fall for anything. One man can lead a revolution to stand up and fight for what's right. One choice, one word, one action can change the world. It's crazy how people hate you for being a leader. I hope your actions encourage many others to stand up and say enough is enough. Respect to you, Kyrie, and power to the people. Yeah, enough is enough. And you're seeing more and more people. And the more high-profile people that do this, Rihanna was wearing a shirt. She was seen photographed in a T-shirt that says, Think While It's Still Legal. That was right around the time that Nicki Minaj was being roasted on social media for saying she wasn't going to get the vaccine. Now, she said some other things, too, about, you know, I know somebody, my cousin's friend's brother had some kind of reaction, which is a little weird and wasn't true, probably. It was just, you know, filtered down through the grapevine. But now, if you say something that is, quote, untrue based on the opinion of Facebook's fact checkers, you're canceled. You're done. And you're starting to see high profile people, especially people of color who are saying, "Mm, no mas, this isn't happening. No more. I'm not, I'm not going to be quiet. Uh, And what did uh, Kyrie Irving said here? He said, he's not against vaccines, but he's against being forced by an employer to make medical decisions. And he's not alone in that. You had New York City workers protesting the the mandate in that city. They marched across the Brooklyn Bridge, shut it down. There were about 5,000 of them on Monday that did this. Now, uh, this gentleman, Andrew Ansbro, who's the FDNY Firefighter Association president, was on with Brian yesterday. If they are not vaccinated, all government workers are not vaccinated by 5 o'clock tomorrow, at least have one vaccine under their belt, by 5 o'clock tomorrow, they're being, they're putting, they're being put on leave without pay. Not being fired. They're putting on unpaid leave. Here's what the head of the Firefighters Association had to say about that. The staffing just is not there. There's no way to do it. And the response times are going to go through the roof. We're just not going to be able to get to the emergencies in time. Fires are going to burn longer. Heart attack victims are going to be laying on the floor longer for us to get there. People in stuck elevators can going to be stuck there for hours, if not days. That is my hell on earth, by the way, being stuck in an elevator and not being able to get out. That is I. That is my, oh my gosh, never ever, throw me into a pit of snakes. Do not leave me in an elevator that is stopped and I can't get out. <laughs> That's, so I need the firefighters to come get me. But he's right. Look what we're doing to our doctors and nurses. So I don't know for me, if you had a vaccine mandate at work, would you get the vaccine just to keep your job? I mean, if you want to get it, I have no problem with that. But I'm curious just to get your just to keep your job. Would you get the vaccine? 866-408-7669. 866-408-7669. That would be a hard one for me. You know, the company I was working for up until mid-May, 
uh, when they said we all have to come back in the office, I was commuting four hours on weekends and living away from my husband for three years and everything. I wasn't doing it anymore. And when they said, nope, we're not negotiating, uh, I had to wonder if I would have walked or been fired come October 1st when I was told you're going to have to get a, a vaccine and you're going to have to come into the into the studio to work. Uh, I, the, I wonder if the vaccine would have been my Waterloo. I don't know. And my husband and I have since had discussions and things have changed, but, but still, would you get the vaccine just because you have to, in order to put food on the table, in order to be able to pay those bills? One more quick cut here. This is still the head of the firefighters association, Andrew Ansbro. There is no crisis. Months ago, the mayor had his parade to say this is over. As far as we're concerned, it's over. And members need to have a choice to either get tested or vaccinated. The mayor is going to be faced with either sending us home or sticking with his guns. And his guns are going to get New York City residents killed. When this city goes into utter chaos on November 1st, be ready to pick up the pieces that the mayor causes. Yeah. Your call's coming up on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't go anywhere. Brian Kilmeade will be right back. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. A fast as three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. But let me ask you this. Are we safer as a community with less police officers? Are we better off as a community when our hospitals are short-staffed because nurses are forced to leave their jobs over these mandates? I am one of many across the country who lost their job because of a mandate. My impact on society? Not that significant, right? I'm a sports broadcaster. I understand that. But there are people who contribute and uplift and support this community, members of our military, who are forced to walk away. Good people who love their jobs are now deciding or having to decide between providing for their family and getting an injection which they aren't comfortable with. That is un-American. That is not what takes place in the land of the free. That right there is now former ESPN reporter Allison Williams. She was t- speaking with Tucker and she has very famously said, stood up and said, I- I'm leaving. I'm walking away. I'm that person who would be like, no, you have to fire me. <laughs> like, I'm collecting unemployment. Like, that, that's where I would be right now. Uh, she walked away. So I don't know if they fired her or she just, you know, said I'm out. Uh, and it's going to take high profile people to do that. It's going to take people like the brave men and women, 5,000 or more in New York City who marched across the Brooklyn Bridge, stopped the traffic on the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, on a Monday, though, I would not be super happy if I had to use the bridge. Uh, but to say, look, they're, they're protesting the mayor's vaccine mandate for the entire municipal workforce. Our doctors, our nurses, all of these people, EMTs, who during the pandemic, before we had the vaccine, were saving lives and not dying off at a massive rate. My husband runs an ICU. My husband's an ICU doctor. He was up to, in New Jersey, he was up to his eyeballs in COVID patients. He doesn't have the titers. He never tested positive for COVID. So their, their PPE was clearly working. But he, too, got that mandate that you have to be vaccinated. And he had to think long and hard about it. Uh, But, you know, the mortgage needs to be paid, etc. And he's not in a position yet where he can retire or quit his job. And so he he had to get vaccinated. He didn't have a choice. 
And, you know, he said he almost felt violated about it because there's no choice given to you. You will get this medication. uh, And if anything bad happens to you, you can't sue like they're absolved from any kind of lawsuit or any kind of oopsies that might happen afterwards. Uh, Sorry. So I'm curious to find out what decision would you make if you had to get vaccinated in order to keep your job because Five o'clock tomorrow night in New York City, you may find yourself not getting your house fire call answered or a police officer coming, responding to your 911 call because they may not have enough because so many do not want the vaccine. They're not taking it. I'll get to your calls, but very quickly, uh, let's see. The numbers here, you, you have, uh, hold out some, you know what, while we'll talk to Stephen, I'll get the numbers because I do have them here somewhere. So let's go to Eddie first on WABC out of the Bronx. Eddie, you're on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi. Hi. Good morning or good afternoon. How are you? I'm um, doing good. House- okay, I'm sorry. I-, I work for the Housing Authority in New York, NYSHA, the largest landlord, I think, in the world, definitely the country. We, our, our deadline, as, as the same as the police and firemen, is Friday. And Monday, we're, we're not necessarily fired, but if you don't have the vaccination, you're, you're laid off without pay. Now, a big issue with that is the buildings that we go into every day, build with tenants, they do not have to be vaccinated, and we are not allowed to ask them if they were vaccinated, yet we have to be as an employee. Mm-hmm. And also, subcontractors do not have to prove they're vaccinated. So there's people taking work from us, other skilled trades, carpenters, plumbers, that work for a subcontractor who do not have to prove they're vaccinated. And most everyone I know, if they have the age or the years, this is like the ending point. They're ready to go. But the majority of us don't have that, you know, that luxury. We have to work. So we got vaccinated. How did that make you feel? I'm curious how you felt being forced to do something like that that you didn't want to do. Well, it was set up in one of the developments in the community center. And the manager of the community center said, go over there and get it because there's no one getting it. Because it it wasn't set up for the employees. It was set up for the tenants, for the residents. No one was going. So there was no line, and I, I was given a heads up from this manager. I, they, they, she said to me, I know which direction this is going in, and we're all going to have to have it. You may as well get it now while there's no line. I was hesitant, but to be honest with you, I have no choice. I need the job, and there was no wait, so I ran in and got it. Yeah, yeah, I, and I totally understand being in that position, and I found the numbers. Uh, Dermot Shea said that I, uh, he would not say how the NYPD will inc- handle an increase of 25% drop in staffers come 5 o'clock t- on tomorrow. FDNY and the Department of, d- let's see, excuse me, the FDNY and the Department of Corrections and Sanitation, the vaccination rates are all below 63%. The correction department is only 52% of members being vaccinated. That's why their deadline is a little bit later. And people who have been vaccinated, excuse me, 73% of NYPD have been vaccinated. I correct myself there. Um, but it's FDNY, Department of Sanitation, Department of Corrections, all below 63%. Uh, and Eddie, thank you for, for joining us. They're giving out a $500 pay bump if you get the vaccination now. So people who got the vaccination before are like, wait a minute. I got it before. You didn't give me a $500 pay bump. It's like they just can't handle it. I understand giving people incentives. I get it. You want people to get vaccinated. You're going to give them an incentive. But then what do you tell the people who who listened to you the first time around and got vaccinated 
And you tell them, sorry, no incentive for you because you did the right thing the first time around. That's just a really screwed up message. Quickly, Kathy in Atlanta, Georgia. Kathy, you are on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi. Hey, actually, my name is Stephanie, but I'm a nurse, um, and I've worked COVID both to go rounds, and my job just enforced the mandate, and a bunch of us are just not really happy about it, and we're going to be let go without leave as well on the 12th. So have you, you, and I don't know if you're married or not, but you've looked at your finances and you said, okay, we can do this. Or do you have a game plan? Is there something else you can do? Because you're in Georgia, which is weird. I wouldn't think there would be mandates in Georgia. Um, I'm a travel nurse and I, and the company I work for is actually based out of Florida, but um, all their hospitals are requiring it, I guess, because they're government funded. So I'm trying to get on with another hospital that isn't government funded, but I love my job so much. It just really sucks. I've been with them for over two years. So how many, do you have any idea how many people are going to be left in their employment to be able to handle all of these traveling nurse assignments? Because I would assume they're, you're in high demand. Yeah. I mean, we're already so short staffed. Uh, we don't even have like enough staff to take care of the, the patients already. So, I mean, I don't know what's, they're going to do but the ceo he just said we're all replaceable so i'm not sure wow that is pretty arrogant uh stephanie thank you for joining us because these people were all heroes right now all of a sudden you're replaceable you're all replaceable in a year what an insult to all of those men and women in ems ambulances police fire doctors, nurses, techs in hospitals who put their life on the line last year during COVID when there was no vaccine. We had no clue what we were dealing with, didn't know the the etymology of this virus. And they were heroes and we were, you know, banging pots and pans and beeping our horns for them and sending them food. And yay, they were the best people ever. And now you're replaceable. See ya. It's going to be interesting to see where this goes, though. I don't think they're as replaceable as some CEOs seem to think. More coming up on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Yes, I'm Mary Walter sitting in for Brian Kilmeade today. Uh, Let's change gears here a little bit. We are joined now by New Jersey GOP candidate for Governor Jack Chitterelli. Sir, thank you for joining me on the Brian Kilmeade Show on Fox News Radio. How are you? Doing real well, Mary. Thank you for having me. Of course. You know, I promoted that you were going to be coming on. I, I threw it out on social media and I got a lot of questions for you from people. So I hope you don't mind if I ask some of those questions. I may know the answer to some of these, but these are questions that people had for you. One of the questions I got was regarding the Project Veritas video that came out on Monday from James O'Keefe that showed two staffers from the uh, Murphy campaign saying that, yes, once he gets elected, they're just going to get through the election first. Then you're going to see mask mandates. You're going to see vaccination mandates, etc. I see some people saying, how do you know that's true? How do you know he's really going to do that? And what do you plan on doing 
should you win? Will there be mandates? So these are senior staffers very close to the governor. He needs to come clean about whether or not what they were saying is true. I do think as a gubernatorial candidate, as an incumbent governor, you need to come clean with the people of New Jersey. Be transparent. It wouldn't be the first time Phil Murphy hasn't been transparent with us. We've seen that in the nursing homes. I've been very clear. I'm vaccinated. I promoted my vaccination. I strongly encourage people to get vaccinated. But do I believe that government has a right to tell people they have to take a vaccine for COVID-19? I just don't. So under Governor Cetarelli, there won't be an adult or child vaccine mandate. Would you welcome, as uh, Governor DeSantis is doing in Florida, would you welcome New Yorkers who have worked for the city of New York and are under this mandate that goes into effect at 5 o'clock tonight and will find themselves uh, on unpaid leave? Governor DeSantis is welcoming those types of workers to Florida, telling them, come on down, we've got jobs for you. Would you be able to do the same in New Jersey? We absolutely could. And let me say this. There are a great many frontline workers, police, EMTs, hospital workers, it worked all through the pandemic, the height of the pandemic, when our ICUs were at capacity and, and people were passing left and right from this virus back when, when there was a lot we didn't know we didn't know. And now to turn around and tell those people that they're going to be fired if they don't get vaccinated, that's wrong. And uh, I'm just not going to do that as governor. But do, do we have the jobs available in New Jersey to welcome any of these people in, like, say, firefighters or police officers or anyone else who, you know, even teachers who don't want the mandate? Absolutely, we do, Mary. As I've gone across the state, I will tell you that there's been a labor shortage in many different areas, and we've got to fill that shortage. One way to do that is get people back to work. I mean, I'm all for taking care of our brother and sister. I'm all for the social safety net, but Phil Murphy made it too easy for too long. I mean, we've got the highest unemployment rate in the nation, and yet everywhere you go, there's a help wanted sign. Those two things don't go together, and business owners tell you. People walk in and say, I'm happy to work, but you got to pay me cash. I don't want to lose my unemployment. I mean, what's happening to us? This is Phil Murphy's New Jersey. It needs to be fixed. How do you fix it? Number one, stop being so generous with the unemployment benefits. And number two, stop with the eviction moratorium. Again, there are hardship cases, and I will always take care of the hardship cases. But everyone else, we need to get back to work. There's too many people that are exploiting the opportunity, and it's bad for New Jersey. Yeah, absolutely. Because you're you're right. You go to how many places do you go to? And there's a sign that says, sorry, we're closed because we can't find anyone to work. So that that has to stop. Those extended uh, hours have to stop because I feel sorry. We're we're rewarding people to stay home and the people who are coming to work aren't getting rewarded. I cannot tell you the number of checkers at ShopRite <laughs> who have told me, because I actually thank these people for coming to work, even though there's only four lanes open and the wait to check out is 20 minutes. And that's not a lie. That happened to me a couple of weeks ago. And I said, thank you for coming to work. And she looked me in the eye, the checker, and said to me, yeah, they're paying my colleagues not to come to work. My coworkers don't want to come to work. They're getting paid. They should be rewarding me for coming to work. And she has a really good point. The state should be giving... You know, if we have this kind of money, we should be giving it to the people who are getting out of bed and going to work as opposed to making more money by staying home on unemployment. I don't even know if that's a possibility, but I like it. Absolutely, Mary. I agree with everything that you're saying. All of a sudden now, Phil Murphy's um, allocated millions to pay people to go back to work. So we're going to give a bonus to somebody that's been sitting on the couch for eight months when they could have got back to work. But we're not giving a bonus to those people that got up and went to work every single day. Come on now. The other thing is his Department of Labor needs to start verifying whether or not you're looking for work as a condition of getting your unemployment benefits. We're just going to let you continually 
collect unemployment benefits? This is wrong. It's ruining the labor market. It's ruining business in New Jersey. It's time to get back to work. Yeah, and they are running, you know, a lot of these people are will put in that they were looking for a job and then they go to the interview and then they never respond. If they get the job, they just don't respond to the person so they can check off. Yeah, I look, I went to an interview and then they just don't respond if they get offered the job. Let, let's talk a, a little bit. But we were talking about COVID. We were talking about mandates. The state of New Jersey, at last count that I saw, Phil Murphy was responsible for 6,404 nursing home deaths for following Andrew Cuomo's lead in New York. Would you pursue an investigation into Governor Murphy and what he did with those nursing homes and pursue any kind of legal action if necessary? Short answer, yes. And and Mary, we've had more than 8,000 nursing home deaths in New Jersey. We have more nursing home deaths than any other state in the country. Phil Murphy always says, follow the science. The CDC said not to put COVID-19 patients into the nursing home, and yet that's exactly what he did. Even the nursing home operator said, don't do this. People will die. We have a tape of that. It's in one of our commercials. And let's not forget where the greatest number of nursing home deaths took place, in the state-owned and operated veterans' homes. Now, what's interesting is of the 50 states in the union, only one is being investigated by Joe Biden's Department of Justice for nursing home deaths, New Jersey. And, of course, I'd never expect the results of that to be shared prior to the election. But let me say this. When I'm governor, there will be investigational hearings with subpoena power. There was a couple years back, Mary, we had this scandal in New Jersey known as Bridgegate. No one died, but yet the Democratic legislature had investigational hearings with subpoena power. Here with the nursing homes, people died and you don't hear anything crickets. We need to have investigational hearings with subpoena power. Let's talk about that Democratic legislature. You are you famously have have made hay while the sun shines. Absolutely. Of Phil Murphy saying, you know, if taxes, if you don't like taxes, New Jersey's not your state, something along those lines. And that ad is everywhere. And rightfully so, because New Jersey it has the highest property taxes in the country. I mean, when I tell people in other parts of the country that we pay almost twenty thousand dollars in property taxes, they look at me like I need my head examined for staying in the state. How do you work with the Democratic legislature in order to to make any kind of tax reform changes? Well, Mary, first let me say that as a standard barrier for the party and as the person at the top of the ticket, my job is to try to produce a Republican majority. I've got 120 proud, courageous Republicans running on the ticket with me this year, 40 for Senate and 80 for Assembly. And we're shooting for something we haven't had in 30 years, a Republican governor with a Republican majority. But if by chance I'm unsuccessful in producing that majority, here's the really good news. By Constitution, the New Jersey governor is the most powerful in the nation. That gives me an awful lot of leverage in dealing with a Democratic majority, and I'm sure we'll be able to work together to get things done for the benefit of New Jerseyans. I had several people ask me, why no rally with President Trump? Because I've been stumping and saying, you know, like, we got to get out the vote because you're within, depending on the poll, within the margin of error of of beating uh, Phil Murphy, Governor Murphy, which would be amazing in New Jersey. Yet you haven't seen a lot of support from the national uh, people. Ha- and, and it's the same thing with Larry Elder in California. Same thing with Glenn Youngkin in Virginia. You don't see the Republicans coming out and campaigning the way the Democrats do. And the question's been asked, why not a massive rally in New Jersey, South Jersey, where he he did one before, have him come back and to just really rile up the base to get people out to vote. Is that something that you have considered? Mary, I think people see the uh, the endorsements and the kind of visits that we're seeing from Jill Biden, Joe Biden, Barack Obama was here this week. I understand it's Kamala Harris and Bernie Sanders. That, that's nothing more than campaign choreography. Someone said to me the other day, how come you're not bringing anybody in? I said, I'm bringing in Jack Chitterelli. 
I go out every single day as I have for the past two months. We are making six to seven stops every single day all across the state in this countdown to Election Day. The rallies have been great. The energy has been great. I just think that people see right through the campaign choreography. They want to see and hear from the candidate, and that's exactly what I've delivered, and we believe it's been very successful. All right. Uh, the last thing that I that I want to talk to you about is, well, not the last thing. I'm sure we're going to come up with a zillion other things. So I have a lot of questions, but these were the questions that were given to me. I got a lot of of messages, quite a few messages from police officers who are upset with you for what happened back in 2010, according to NJ.com. You were an elected member of the Somerset County Board of Chosen Freeholders, and you oversaw the layoff of 10 officers from the Somerset County Sheriff's Department. And um, they're still upset about that. And also then in 2012, uh, again, as an elected member of the Somerset County Board of Chosen Freeholders, you had a plan to cut $44 million in funding from 19 municipal police agencies because you wanted to merge them all into one. In the event in 2012, excuse me, in 2010, there was allegedly $18 million in budget surplus. So they said, why would you fire officers or oversee the firing uh, firing of sheriff's officers if there's 18 million in surplus? And you don't have one police union endorsement, yet Jack Murphy, excuse me, yet uh, Phil Murphy has two. How, what do you say? Because I'm telling you right now, there are a lot of New Jersey police officers and sheriff's officers listening to what you have to say right now, and they want to know why they should vote for you. Mary, I think it's very, very telling that the two largest police unions in the state, FOP and PBA, have not endorsed Bill Murphy after having endorsed him four years ago. That says a lot more about him than it does about me. The rank and file know that I have their back every day of the week. Their job has never been harder. And Phil Murphy's been the most anti-cop governor we've ever had. He's demoralized them. He's handcuffed them. He's disarmed them with executive order after executive order after executive order. Let's be clear. When I'm governor, we're not getting rid of qualified immunity. Okay, we're not going to have civilian review boards with subpoena power. We're not putting disciplinary cases on the Internet. We're going to reform bail reform. And because applications are down and their job has never been harder, their salary, health benefits and pension will remain whole under Governor Cetarelli. I've got great support amongst the rank and file. That's what you're speaking to is one of the many lies that Phil Murphy has been spreading about me through his campaign because he's a desperate candidate. And and but here's the thing. I mean, th- these are things that actually did happen and they're reported in in the news that that this actually happened. I guess my question is, at that time, if I remember correctly, at that time, they did the same thing in the early 2010s, 2010, 2011, 12, 13, in there. They did the same thing all across New Jersey. I can tell you the town that I live in, there was talk of merging our school because we have a little a little public school, elementary school, that the, each class has like 30 kids in it. So there was talk of merging it with some of the surrounding towns to bring taxes down because New Jersey is a high tax state. So it would make sense if you want to lower taxes to merge police departments. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought that that was the the um, premise under which you were operating at the time. And you were not alone in that in operating uh, under that premise at the time. New Jersey, if you want to lower taxes, is going to have to get rid of some of its home rule. But I don't think it's going to be something a lot of people want. I'm telling you, you know, when they talked about getting rid of our police department here and our little school, the people were up in arms about it. So how do you bring taxes down without readdressing what you addressed in 2010 and 2012? What we addressed back then, Mary, by the way, we had a public committee set up of 90 people. There were about a dozen rank and file union officers 
on that committee, as were six police chiefs. And it was a study over the course of two years to analyze if might there be a better way to take a really, really great police department operation throughout the county and make it even better at a cost savings to taxpayers. And the study did conclude that. But at the end of the day, the community decided not to endorse it. I respect that. So, listen, our blessing is our curse in New Jersey. We've got 565 towns. And the blessing of that is you get to know your mayor and your police chief and everyone else that works in the town really well. Uh, yeah. The curse is that there's a lot of duplication across those 565 towns. As governor, I'm not going to force consolidation. I'll certainly encourage it. I'll advocate it. I'll incentivize it. And uh, we'll provide some financial assistance. But the locals have to make that decision. Not a not a heavy-handed, imperialistic approach from Trenton. So what I'm hearing you say is, don't worry, I'm not going to try that again. I realize that it didn't work on a local level, because I can tell you the pushback in my town didn't work on a local level. So we'll find another way to get around the tax issue, not cutting services to the people. Mary, I was never about strong-arming anything or forcing anything down any community's throat. At the very beginning, I had the endorsement of all 19 mayors to go ahead with that study. When we came out with the study findings two years later, the mayors voted 17 to 2 not to implement it. Implement it. I respect that, but I do think it's a reasonable thing to at least have the study. But as I said, the fact that we had so many rank-and-file union members on the committee studying with us, we had police chiefs on the committee studying with us, um, says that it was a very, very transparent process and I think a very, very healthy discussion. But at the end of the day, it's up to the locals whether or not something like that gets implemented. Well, I'm, I'm glad we had this discussion. You answered a lot of questions for me. I'm sure people have more questions. They're like, why didn't you ask this? But we only have so much time because you are running all over the state of New Jersey, New Jersey gubernatorial candidate Jack Chitterelli. Best of luck to you. Only a couple of days left until the election day. So just everybody's got to get out and vote because I do think the momentum is on your side. Democrats are not super thrilled or super excited about another four years with Phil Murphy, and they're going to just vote for him because he's got a D after his name. Thank you very much, and best of luck to you, sir. Thank you, Mary. Looking forward to next time. All right. 866-408-7669 is the number. You want to comment on what you just heard? Feel free to join me. Uh, We were talking about leaving your job if you uh, were – forced to get a vaccine like they're being forced to do in New York. And you heard the gubernatorial candidate from New Jersey say, yeah, I would do what Governor DeSantis did. Come to New Jersey. We'll find you jobs. Would that be an all viable alternative? I think obviously New York much closer to New Jersey than New York closer to to Florida. But Florida does have better tax incentives. But if maybe uh, you can get a a Republican governor in New Jersey, they can maybe work on some of those uh, the taxes. They have crazy taxes in New Jersey. 866-408-7669. You are listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Giving you everything you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. There's so much misinformation out there, and people have been told things that just aren't true about the vaccine. You have till Friday at 5 o'clock. Folks who don't get vaccinated, sorry to say, they won't get paid. They want to get paid. We need them to be vaccinated. There you go. That's Mayor Bill de Blasio there on his mandate. 
that all members of the entire municipal workforce must be vaccinated by five o'clock tomorrow or they're going to be placed on unpaid leave. And a lot of people are not not happy about that. So if you were put in this position, what would you do? Do you get the vaccine just to be able to put food on the table? I think about that and I think, man, that is just such a terrible position to put people in. True leaders don't do that. I, I just don't. I don't buy this. I, I, I believe in letting people make a choice. Christine listening on WABC. She's on Long Island. Hi, Christine. You're on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Yes. Hi. Good morning, Mary. Um, I have a dear family member who's pregnant and is a medical worker and who, during COVID, did not miss a shift. And now she had to choose between her job with her medical care for her unborn child and she ought to get the vaccine. Uh, this is, and this is, uh, the, to me, it is such an affront to all of our essential workers and so hypocritical that people like your family member, like my husband, who worked, my husband had one day off in the month of March and two days off in the month of April and two days off in the month of May, worked straight, just like I'm sure your family member did, with sick COVID patients trying to save lives with no vaccine, didn't get COVID and he was held a hero. Now, you don't get the vaccine. Good luck. See ya. More coming up on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. I'm Mary Walter sitting in for Brian Kilmeade. The next guest is going to talk about something I think is super interesting and is not getting uh, very much play pretty much anywhere. You will will hear Tucker talk about it. You will hear Hannity talk about it. You'll hear it on Fox. Uh, But most of the time, you're not going to hear anything about this. Brett Tolman is a former United States attorney for the District of Utah and the executive director of Right on Crime. You can find him on Twitter at Tolman, T-O-L-M-A-N, Brett, B-R-E-T-T, all one word. Uh, Brett Tolman, thank you for joining me. Hi, Mary. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk to you about what's happening with these January 6th insurrectionists. There being there are a lot of these people who were uh, at the Capitol on January 6th are still being held in what's being called the deplorables jail. We're hearing stories come out of them being held, some of them in solitary confinement for months, over a month on end, which is just sounds inhumane to me. And we're seeing that those who are getting out and who are being released have to do things like write a letter denouncing their support for President Trump. They're, the judge is telling them, okay, you can get out, but you um, can't watch any television that has anything to do with news and you can't listen to talk radio. It sounds very um, Stalinistic to me what is happening to these people. Some poor grandmother had to disavow Donald Trump uh, because she was charged with a misdemeanor and held in this deplorable jail for over a month. How is any of this legal? So I'm really glad that you're highlighting this. I've been working in the criminal justice system for over 25 years now. I've never seen anything like this. Uh, you know, I've served in the highest levels of the Department of Justice, and um, I, I'm, I, I thought I had seen sort of everything. But what we're seeing now is is so unique and, and so troubling. 
Well, while I would agree, there are individuals that certainly need to be prosecuted. There were events and, and situations, and each one is, is somewhat different. But they have en masse developed a policy that is really just it's punishment for the sake of punishment because they're really mad at someone, as opposed to what the Department of Justice is supposed to be doing, and that is looking at individualized justice for any individual they, they determine they're going to investigate and prosecute. And instead, we see this that they're taking this, this approach that they need to change the thinking of those that they're prosecuting. And anytime the government steps in to adjust somebody's thinking as opposed to investigate a crime, prosecute the crime, you know, take that case to the court, let a jury decide or let a judge decide, they're doing all of this, and it's a misdemeanor. And, and, and in the federal system, there's very few misdemeanors that have ever ever been really prosecuted because they don't have very many in the in the criminal code. Almost all of them are felonies that we that you deal with. But you've highlighted what I've been trying to scream and yell for for a while now, and that is the Department of Justice is is outside boundaries that they set themselves, and they're outside those boundaries that we want them to stay within, but they're not in this particular case, and it's unlike anything I've ever seen. Where are the lawyers? Where are the lawyers screaming about justice? How is Again, I don't understand how this is happening. So there's I, – I, I'm part of discussions. I hear lawyers. I talk to a lot of them that are representing individuals um, that are being prosecuted. And it tells you how powerful the system has become and how powerful the prosecutor is and how little checks and balances are in place right now. Um, the prosecutors in the federal system especially have enormous power. If they want to hold you in, in custody, uh, judges typically go along with the Department of Justice because that long history of sort of deferring to the United States representative and, and, and they've not had a situation like this. And so what you see are defense lawyers that are trying through their traditional means, filing motions, getting in front of a judge, and they're finding that, you know, if that judge doesn't like your politics or if that judge doesn't like your particular defendant, the government's not there to do what is right, and the judge follows what the government is recommending. There's no, no checks and balances once you've been charged with the crime. This is just so scary. Now, the the Republicans, I believe there was a group of them months ago that tried to get into the deplorables jail and they were turned away. Are they doing anything? Have you been in contact with any of these Republican representatives in our congressmen and women who are supposed to be their constituents are sitting illegally in these jails being political prisoners? Have they had any interest in this? Are they doing anything to highlight this to get this to stop? The thing that's frustrating to me, Mary, is there are a few that are willing to be vocal, but there's there's a, a very large number that don't like what they see and hear, and they're concerned about it, but they don't have the political courage to actually step forward because they don't want to be seen as going against this narrative um, that has been spun about how this was – you know, look hundreds and hundreds of individuals went into the Capitol that day. Very few engaged in acts of violence. Very few destroyed property. Very few have been charged with that. No one has been charged with, um, you know, insurrection or some of these, you know, what what we were told this narrative was. 
But the lawmakers, I'm disappointed. There's many lawmakers that I've had conversations with in the Senate and in the House that feel very strongly, but they don't have the courage politically to stand up right now. This is why I hate Washington. I swear. I lived there for three years, and I couldn't stand it then and was one of the reasons I walked away in May. I I don't like it. I don't – I'm sorry. I I feel dirty every time I have to, to travel into the district. I truly do. Uh, this judge, Amy, Amy B. Jackson, she released this man, Thomas Sibick, uh, to his parents. He's 35 years old. He's now under 24-hour incarceration. She had originally denied his release because he's so dangerous. All these people are so dangerous. This, you know, grandmothers and everyone else. And he, ha- he wrote this letter. This is what got him out. This is what it said in part. While many praise Trump, I loathe him. His words and actions are nefarious, causing pain and harm to the world. He is not a leader and should be ostracized from any political future. What he honestly needs to do is go away. So she thinks that he's rehabbing now. You know, this is what we do in the Soviet Union. You do in North Korea. You learn to praise dear leader. And, you know, then you you will be reformed once you're led out of, you know, out of the camp, you know, to reform you. Um, you're allowed then once you, you know, I guess sing the national song to dear leader, they allow you to go out, but he's under the control of his parents at 35 years old. His defense attorneys told the judge that he needed to be saved from radicalization from other defendants who are in this deplorable jail because he's so young, he's 35 and he's so suggestible. And clearly if, if he's as young and suggestible as they say, he probably shouldn't be walking loose. Uh, according to Jordan Fisher, who's been fo- who followed this tri- uh, his trial, said uh, Capitol Rod defendants are being detained together in the D.C. jail and they're radicalizing, according to his lawyer. She uh, says he's heard them singing the Star Spangled Banner, which they do every night at nine. It was almost cult like. So we, we we see now all of this over misdemeanors that have been charged and this <clears throat> this focus by the Department of Justice and by these judges, their focus is not the seriousness of the crime or the criminal history of the individual, which is what they're supposed to be considering when they consider whether they're going to be incarcerated, what sentence they might serve. But instead, they're going to what they believe, what they think, who they value, who they believe in, the politician that they support or don't support. Once we start to get to that point, we've no longer we, we've left the rule of law, and we we now are engaged in, you know, political warfare, and and we're we're creating classes of people, and we see it now also in the media. The media is starting to buy into this and starting to talk about how, you know, people that have conservative thoughts that might stand for the national anthem might like NASCAR or anything else that that seems to them, um, you know a sign that you are a conservative. And if you're a conservative, then you're a problem because you're willing to rush the Capitol and try to take down the government. That's the narrative. 
Right. Now, when they release these videos, as we're starting to see slowly, if these people can afford some kind of lawyer, because if they can't, they're they're dependent on public uh, attorneys, which a lot of them aren't taking these cases, which I didn't know lawyers were allowed to do because doctors have to take every patient that comes to them if they're seeing them in a hospital, whether they can pay or not. You have no choice. And then they can come back and sue you if they don't like the care they got. Lawyers, however, who made those rules don't have to take everyone who comes to them in search of a public representation. They have to, people have to take whatever they can get as far as lawyers go. Um, the lawyers who do take these cases, God bless them. They're starting to get some of the video released, which they don't, the DOJ does not want to release. And I don't understand how these people can, can be charged when Capitol police, according to the latest video released, were holding the door open for these people to walk in. Yeah, and you know, I I represent one defendant in this, and uh, she was an individual that, you know, she she wasn't a, a real big Trump supporter. She was there with another person who was, and they went into the Capitol. And um, you know, her it's really interesting to to have her perspective because, you know, the Capitol is foreign. She had never been there before, and she arrived a few hours later. And what she saw was very different than those that were right there at the time where windows were broken and they went in. Um, But the the Department of Justice doesn't seem to really be making any sort of distinction between those that may have just come in and whether they saw, you know, a security guard just opening the door for them versus those that came in uh, through a broken window or or were part of the initial ones that broke down a barrier. And and so very quickly, because we. no, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt you. We we only have like a couple minutes here, uh, about two minutes. Uh, yesterday during the question of the Attorney General Merrick Garland, Thomas Massey questioned him about a man named Ray Epps. Do you know anything about this? Are you familiar with this allegation at all? I am. Yep. I'm familiar that there are, are individuals, and I have spoken to some people, who say they clearly – saw people that were agitating that didn't seem to be really just there for the rally that were there trying to rile the crowd and trying to get them to go into the Capitol. And if those were informants, whether they're agents or whether they're informants working for agents, you know, that's an issue. That's a problem. Yeah, the the allegation for people who don't know, um, he presented Merrick Garland, Thomas Massey did, with a picture of a man named Ray Epps, who was a former leader with the Arizona chapter of the Oath Keepers. And in the videos, he can be seen trying to tell people, we're going to go to the Capitol, and we're not just going to go to the Capitol, we're going to go in the Capitol. And you could hear people saying, no, no, no. And then you started to hear people go, Fed, he's a Fed, he's a Fed, looks like a Fed. And uh, he is interesting, they say, because he was never arrested or charged by the FBI, yet he is on video agitating the crowd, telling them to go in. Sean Davis on Twitter noted that at one point the FBI had his picture up on its page of people that they wanted to question. He was photographed 16. Not only was he not arrested, his picture was quietly removed from the FBI Capitol violence page. And now it goes from uh, from 15 to 17. And number 16, Ray Epps, is gone. How do we find out if this is true? I think it is. I think it is true that there were individuals, and I've spoken. I have spoken to one individual who was working um, with the FBI. That was there trying to. You know, he was not there at the actual rally, but he was working with the FBI, and he's aware of individuals that were there. You know, the, at the rally, <clears throat> and 
when I say working with the FBI, they're they're providing information. Um, they are informants, and it's not it's not unusual for the FBI to have informants at things like this. But it is very unusual to see those informants not just there to report information, but there to stir up the crowd to get them to do something that that may be criminal. Yeah, this is this is all just it just reeks to high heaven for me. And I hate to put on my tinfoil hat. But man, when it comes to this, I certainly do. Brett Tolman, thank you for at least defending at least one of these people and having the guts to step up and do so. Thank you very much for joining us, Brett Tolman. Thanks, Mary. 866-408-7669. Your call's next on The Brian Kilmeade Show. It's Brian Kilmeade. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. I want to thank my colleagues in the Congress for the leadership. We spent hours and hours and hours over months and months working on this. No one got everything they wanted, including me. But that's what compromise is. That's consensus. And that's what I ran on. I've long said compromise and consensus are the only way to get big things done in a democracy, important things done for the country. I know it's hard. I know how deeply people feel about the things that they fight for. But this framework includes historic investments in our nation and in our people. That was your President Joe Biden reading the teleprompter. Uh, and he thinks the reconciliation bill, or he probably doesn't even know, because uh, someone wrote that for him and he just reads it and, and walks away. Um, he uh, said, so, so they're looking to get this reconciliation bill done. They were supposed to uh, vote this week, but they still have problems. So even though he says we're compromising, they've got a lot of problems. You had um, who there was a. a Democrat. Oh, Gomez, Jimmy Gomez uh, out of California. He's a Democrat. He told political playbook that the idea of a wealth tax angered him as a waste of time. He said the Senate needs to start saying yes or no on issues and stop blanking talking. You've got Pramila Jayapal uh, and Representative AOC, the two House members who are the head of this. Well, Jayapal is the head of the Progressive Caucus. Uh, saying just earlier this week that the reconciliation package, they have, they want to vote on that first. And then, they, so they want to do the vote on one and then the vote on the other. And then you have Nancy Pelosi and the others saying, no, we're not going to do that. You've got um, Joe Manchin, who is really sticking it to Bernie Sanders. And he shut Bernie Sanders down on Medicare expansion. He said, no, let's, why don't we make sure that we have enough money to pay for what we're already giving people. Medicare's Board of Trustees warned Congress in a report that they made at the end of August that um, the depletion for Medicare's hospital insurance trust fund is 2026. That's five years away. Five years away. They're going to have to start new applicants are going to automatically get 25% less than the people before them. Now what? And that's still not going to make it solvent. And spending on Medicare is expected to rise from 4% of gross domestic product to 6.2% by 2045. So Joe Manchin says something that I think it makes sense, makes fiscal sense. And he says, we have a moral obligation to provide to those who have incapacities, such as physical or mental, but everyone else should be able to help and chip in. That's my mindset. Let's stabilize what we've got going first before... 
we start adding more people on. It doesn't mean you don't care. Earlier, we were talking to New Jersey gubernatorial candidate Jack Cittarelli, and I asked him about comments he made uh, about, you know, consolidating services with the police and teachers, et cetera. And he's like, yeah, we explored it. Nobody wanted to do it. But New Jersey has unsustainable pension debt. What are you going to do? People don't like being told, hey, you're going to you may get less. But isn't it better than getting nothing? I don't know the answer to that. And everybody's got to make that decision for themselves. So I'm sure the president will be reading more off the teleprompter soon. I'm Mary Walter. You are listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.